Hello and welcome to the Wish You Knew podcast. I'm your host, Karen Bortvet. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is part two of our podcast with Keith, who identifies as Mormon. I hope that you all were able to learn a lot from last week's episode. This week, we continue starting with a question that I think is very relevant to the time today. One of our listeners had asked about race issues, essentially. So we'll cut directly to that interview and continue to see what Keith has to say. Another question that came up was someone asked me specifically to ask you about the church's stance on black people and their historical position on skin color, which led me to do some research to try to understand what it was they were referring to. Brigham Young, one of the first leaders, was instrumental in starting slavery in Utah until 1978. Interracial marriages were not allowed, and black men of African descent were not allowed to rise to the priesthood. Are those all accurate statements, and can you explain that? No, I appreciate bringing it up, especially with the whole, what we've got going on in the world today with the NFL and uh, systemic oppressions. I can't attest to Brigham Young's stance of slavery. I've read books, I've read documents, I've read things where Brigham Young, because at that time, slavery was an accepted practice. Every religion was practicing slavery. It was not an uncommon practice. Didn't make it right, and men will make their own choices. And Brigham Young is documented in many, many times. Brigham Young had very strong opinions and shared a lot of them. But in our church, when a person speaks as a prophet, it is doctrine. When a person, when a prophet speaks as a man with an opinion, then that's all it is. It's not doctrine. I don't have to follow it. I don't have to believe it. I don't even have to care. There's a documented discussion one time of Joseph Fielding Smith, the Mormon prophet, who said men would never land on the moon. And so people use that as an argument that prophets are false. Well, he's a man who made, a, who made his own opinion and thought certain things. Within the LDS faith, you could always be baptized into the Mormon church, have full fellowship within the Mormon church, except the priesthood until official declaration, September 30th, 1978. I have it here in front of me. That yes, that's when they made the decision to allow black people to hold the priesthood. My understanding of what happened with that whole situation was, again, it was one of those times where the church had been wrestling with the idea, why couldn't they hold the priesthood? What, why can't they do this? I think a lot of it was broken into tradition. I think it started at the beginning of the church and just kind of carried its way through. In the 30s and 40s, the church was really the leadership, what we call the first presidency, which is a prophet and his two counselors, and the 12 apostles were petitioning, i.e. praying, to God to give him an answer. And they got it in 1978. So that's one of those instances where, as a first, as you'd ask one question about polygamy, if it were legal, would the church do it? In 1978, that's 15 years beyond the civil rights movement, and they still were holding off until 1978. So the church does what it does because it, it does it when they believe God tells them to do it. It is a unhappy thought in my mind that there was ever a time that a brother could not hold, and I don't say that as in a racial connotation, He's a bro- everybody's a brother and a sister to me, uh, that a brother couldn't hold the priesthood. I don't understand it, and I don't know that I would ever had agreed with it, but it was what it was, and the church did it. And it's not that way anymore, but yeah, it was like that until 1978. The church said, no, you can't hold the priesthood. You can get baptized, you can you can do everything, but you can't hold the priesthood. And women were in the Reef Society, women did all, all that stuff. Boys grew up through the through the young men's program. They could hold the Aaronic priesthood, but they could not hold the Mekhezek priesthood. 
So that's a, a common misunderstanding is it could hold the lesser of the two priesthoods before 1978. So they could be baptized and they could baptize, but they could not be elders in the church, which would not allow them to go through the temple. So it's a it's a difficult topic, I think, but it's a truth that my church went through. You mentioned again in that answer the word prophet. I should have asked you long before this, but could you clarify what does that mean within the LDS church? We believe that a prophet on the earth today is the same as a prophet like Moses or Noah or Elijah in the Old Testament. A prophet is the leader of our church. He's a mouthpiece for God and Jesus Christ on this earth. What he says in the capacity of a prophet, we take as literal doctrine and the literal request of what God would want from his people on this earth. So for us, he is everything that everybody would expect a prophet to be. Old Testament standards, New Testament, well, there's, I can't think of a, new, of a prophet New Testament other than Christ himself was considered a prophet too. But in the Old Testament, a prophet is God's mouthpiece to the world. That ties in very nicely with the next question about being a mouthpiece to the world. The LDS Church is possibly the most visible church out evangelizing throughout the world. One person had asked, what makes you so sure that your religion is the right, right in quotation marks, one? Another person asked a similar question, what makes you so sure that your way to heaven is better than the others? Wow, I heard that question so much on my mission. I'm going to make a brassy statement. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the most correct church on this earth. That is what we believe. That is what I teach. That is what I believe. I believe all religions, and the eldest faith teaches this, all religions have levels of truth. Some have more than others. But we believe that the eldest faith has all the truth that is available to man this day. Hence, we have the Book of Mormon and the Bible and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. So... I don't believe that my way to God is any different than anybody else's in the respect that you cannot be saved by works. And a lot of people argue Mormons believe works. No. The scriptures teach us that faith without works is nothing but dead. So if you're not going to work for your faith, you don't really have faith. You might preach it to people, but your heart's going to tell you you don't have faith because you're not working for God. Now, I'm not here to judge the intent of a person's heart. Only God can do that. But we all believe all Christian faiths believe you must be, you must ask God to, or ask God or Christ to save you. We believe that. Not literally you have to get on your knees and ask him to save you, but you do have to get on your knees and profess that Jesus is the Christ, God is your Father, and that the Holy Ghost exists and that you want to follow their teachings. We believe that baptism is required for that. We believe that confirmation of the Holy Ghost is required for that, for this purpose of salvation, because that's your outward commitment to God that I'm actually doing this. This is my belief. And it's more of one of those things where you're baptized as an outward statement. It solidifies your commitment to God. Receiving the Holy Ghost solidifies your commitment to God. Failure to do those things is a failure to commit to your faith. That is why we believe that baptism is so important. If you're not willing to get baptized, then are you really willing to plan? Sounds harsh, but it's the same thing. If you're really not willing to be faithful to your spouse, then should you really get married? The same thing with, with baptism within the LDS faith. I believe that the LDS faith has the most accurate depiction of what God has in store for me. Again, all churches have some truth. Some have more than others. I believe God requires us to sacrifice. If you're not sacrificing, you're not growing. If you're not growing, you're not helping. If you're not helping, you're stagnant. And God does not want us to be stagnant. He wants us to move forward. He wants us to grow. He wants us to be better. He wants us to love people. He wants us to love him. He wants us to serve and just be better. And if you're not sacrificing, you're not getting better. 
a lot of people comment, well, you know what? I'm happy with my faith. I don't have to give 10% of my income. I don't have to be at church for three hours every Sunday, hours of meetings during the week, and give up two years of my life. I don't have to do those things because I don't want to, and God doesn't require it. You know what? If that makes you happy, follow that. But you're not growing. In my mind, it's kind of a brassy thing to say. I agree. But in my mind, you're not growing. And if you're not growing, you're stagnant. And that's not good for you. It's not good for a person to be stagnant. And the LDS faith pushes. And it requires sacrifice. And it requires faith. I mean, every month, I fast for two meals. So first Sunday of every month, I give up breakfast. I don't eat food or drink water for 24 hours. For a guy like me, that's kind of hard sometimes. I get hungry. I get thirsty. And I don't do it. Because I'm proving to myself and to my Father in Heaven that I'm willing to sacrifice certain certain aspects of my life in order to glorify Him. I, I think it's wrong when somebody says the Mormons have the best plan or the best set of beliefs. I think we have the correct plan and the correct set of beliefs. And that if you're willing to follow them, you'll find nothing but happiness and joy if you're willing to look at the blessings that you're entitled to. Everything requires a challenge. Pain and suffering happens to everybody. But if, if you understand what is in store for you, then I think it's easier to handle loss and pain and struggles and challenges. And Mormons get fired. Mormons lose their jobs. Mormons die. Mormons get killed. Mormons murder. Mormons go to jail. Mormons make mistakes. But I think it's important to look at the eternal aspect of things. And I think that's what the faith teaches me the most. Am I looking at my eternal uh, outcome or am I just focusing on today? Is the fasting that you mentioned a Keith thing or an LDS thing? It's an LDS thing. When you join the LDS church, you're taught that fasting is done. So fasting is a great thing, actually. People don't understand the whole aspect of it. When we fast, we give up two meals, and the church asks, hey, the money you would spend on those two meals, donate to the church. The church has one of the largest welfare programs in the world. You, If you ever go look at Welfare Square in Salt Lake City or you ever Google church welfare system, we'll put Costco to shame. I mean, we have, we have a lot going on. The LDS Church sends out, if even with Hurricane Harvey, you can read articles about help Mormons helping hands, helping hands Mormons or something like that. Yellow shirts, Louisiana's got it, Florida's got it, Puerto Rico's got them. The church is huge on welfare, huge, huge, huge on welfare. And it is all funded from fasting. The church asks the members, say, hey, what would you spend on two meals for your family? I'd spend 20 bucks. Great, we give that to the church. On top of our tithing, I spend 50 bucks a month on, on fast offerings. And the fast offerings is specifically held for the welfare program. So that's why we do it. And the church asks us. Now, if you have, if you have physical limitations, i.e. you're pregnant, you're diabetic, you have dietary concerns, then the church says, okay, instead of giving up food and water, how about you give up TV? How about you give up the Internet? How about you give up something just to teach yourself to sacrifice for the greater good? That's what fasting is all about. That's why I love it. It's like I said, the welfare program. I mean, if you have a member of the church that doesn't have any food, they can go shopping at the church, at what we call a bishop's warehouse, and every city's got one. And the bishop fills out a form and says, how many loaves of bread do you want? Cheese, milk, eggs, meat, toilet paper, diapers, baby formula, whatever you need. Fill it all out. Go down to the store. They hand you all the stuff, and you go home with it. It doesn't cost you a dime. Does that extend just to church members or to people outside the church who fall on hard times as well? Anybody. I've filled orders for people that were not members of our church. The only thing the church asks is that you come and do an act of service. So we might ask you, hey, we'll give you food. Come clean the Come help us vacuum the building or clean the building on Saturday. That's all we want. No money. Help us pull weeds for an hour. 
you know, so-and-so down the street from you is a member. They're old. They need some yard work done. Can you go do that? And so we give people an opportunity to earn their food without having to spend money and still keep their dignity about them. And so it's a great program. The church doesn't, the first time you get the service from the church is pretty much, we're hoping you'll come and help us. But if you don't, then fine. But it's not like we deny you a second or a third or a fourth or a fifth time. If you need help, we'll help you, irregardless of your situation. If you need help, we'll help you. And we find you taking advantage of us, we cut you off. But if you truly are in need of help and assistance, then we're here. We'll do it. That's very cool. You had mentioned about works, and someone actually had asked a question specifically about that that makes a whole lot more sense to me now. If your faith is based on works and merits of your own doing and actions, how do you reconcile leisure time? Would that be considered sinful if you were at the movies instead of at a homeless shelter? I'm genuinely curious about this. That's a great question. God expects us to sacrifice, but not kill ourselves in the sacrifice that we do. We don't believe that works save us. I mean, that's, that's one thing I can't preach enough. Works do not save people. Faith in Christ saves you. But your faith in Christ is strengthened through the works that you perform. It's, uh, salvation is a gift. But with any gift that you're given, you take an eff- you make an effort to keep that gift. If you're given... If you buy a new TV and a remote, by golly, you're going to keep an eye on it. And you're going to try and, 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 and keep it safe and not get broken and, and make an effort to keep those things running well. If you're given a gift from a child, you're going to hold it and love it and appreciate it because your child gave it to you. Salvation's the same way. It's a gift. So I get bothered when people say, I've given 60 hours of service this week and I've only given five. The amount of service you give is not dependent on your level of salvation or your level of awesomeness. I've got six kids. I travel 100 days a year. I'll be lucky if I can spend five hours in a homeless shelter at all throughout the entire year. I do my service. I see a guy on the side of the road. I'll stop and see if he needs help. That's my service. That's what I can do. My wife makes applesauce and gives it to our neighbors. That's what she can do. She's got five kids, six kids to take care of. She doesn't want to work, and, and so she she doesn't, and I'm, I'm happy for her. She does what she wants. When I hear people ask that question and they look at it that way, it, it bothers me because that's not how you should look at service. It's not how much have I done to be awesome. It's you do what you can. I, there's a, a hymn we sing in the church. It's called, Have I Done Any Good in the World Today? Have I Helped Anyone in Need? In my mind, that's a, an important question. Have I done any good? Have I helped anyone in need? If so, I've done the right thing. I don't have the opportunity every day, but when it's there, I should take it. And that's, that's what I think the church, that's what the church has taught me. I don't know that there's a doctrinal statement that I could find somewhere, but the church has taught me that I help where I can, when I can. And the Lord sees that, and the Lord appreciates that. And there are days when I should help more because somebody needs to be moved, but I'm tired, and I'm lazy, and imperfect, and I'm lazy, and imperfect, and I'll make the mistake. But there's other days where I'll build an engine for a guy because he needs it done, and he doesn't have any money, and I can do it because I have the tools and the knowledge. So it's a trade-off. I think if everybody held that perspective towards service, the world would be a very different place. I tend to agree with that. I wish more people just looked at service that way. It's just, hey, have I done any good in the world today? Have I helped anyone in need? That's it. And it's just that easy. Some days I'd settle for, have I tried not to do any harm in the world today? (laughs) I'll set the bar even lower than you, Keith. (laughs) So this is the last question that I think is about sort of a general rumor of the church that floats around. Someone asked, 
when a righteous man, specifically male, dies, how does he become a god, which is in quotes, of his own world when there is only one god? Okay. Oh, I love that. I love that question. I love this topic. It's one of my favorite topics because it's an amazing belief that the LDS faith holds. When, when people ask that question, there is only one God. And this is how I explain it to people. How many dads do you have? You have one dad, period. If your mom remarries, you still have one dad. One person caused you to come into this world. You may love him or hate him. That's your choice. But you have one dad. Someday you have the opportunity to become a dad. But you'll always have one dad. Who will be that child's grandfather? But now you are a dad to a child. Now are you better than your dad? No. Are you worse than your dad? No. Are you equal to your dad? You can become equal to your father. So that is what we believe happens when, you, when a righteous man dies and he's sealed to a woman, that they have the ability to become like God, that they will then at that point have the opportunity to create their own worlds based on what they were taught by their father. So when I hear people say, there's only one God, you can't become God, you're right, I never will be God. I don't attain to be God. I tend to be a father. I'm a father of six. Nothing would make me happier in this world than for my four boys to become fathers and for my grandsons to become fathers so that I can look at them and say, look at my family. I was a small part of this. I brought four boys into the world. Now, if they each bring in two boys, it multiplies. But I'm just one man. Just as our father in heaven is one God, he's the only God I will ever worship. He's the only God I will ever acknowledge. But my boys see me as their father. They don't call my father father. They call him grandpa, but they call me dad because I'm dad. That's the best way in my mind to explain the God question that people ask. I don't believe I'll be God. The church doesn't teach I will be God, but I can become a God, like God, over my own world, over my own children, over my own family, just like in this life. And, and, and the church teaches us quite a bit that this life is a time to prepare to meet God, but it's also a time to understand God. Families are essential in understanding our Father in Heaven. A child will choose to love their parent or hate their parent based on their own decisions, based on outside influences, but ultimately you make your own choice. Just as you will either accept God within whatever religious faith you have, or you will push away God. Whichever degree you follow, you follow. And so when people ask me that, in my mind, that's what becoming a God is. I'm a father. I'll be a father again someday. And that's what it is. So I, I hope that clarifies to some people how Mormons look at it, because that's the best way I've ever understood it. Nowhere in scriptures you find that the Mormon faith teaches you'll become God, or you'll be greater than God, or you'll be better than God, or that you'll forget God. It all says, like God. That's it. So it'll be like God, which translates into gods of your own, a God of your own world. Great. I will become like God. I will have the same privileges and understandings that he has. But anything I do will glorify him. If I live my life just like your kids, they glorify you. And their kids will glorify you. And their kids will glorify you. So when I die, if I live a life worthy of it, and I get to my special kingdom, and I get the opportunity to become like God, then I will create worlds, and I'll look at God and say, look what I've done for you. Look what you taught me to do. Look what you've done for me. Look how happy you've made me. Thank you. I'm going to do more for you, and it glorifies him. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's very well explained. Thank you. Someone else asked, has the Mormon church ever made mistakes? 
<laughs> Members of the church have. I hold on to this belief. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ is perfect. The church of God is perfect. The men that run it are not. The people that are in charge of it are not perfect, and they will make mistakes. And God allows us to make mistakes so that we can be judged. Just as he allows people to kill people, he allows people to die, he allows people to do all these horrible things in this world so they can be judged of their own actions. I believe that, that the church members have made mistakes. I don't believe that the church has made a mistake, but the members have. Mountain Meadow Massacre is an example. The church did not endorse Mountain Meadow Massacres. Members of the church panicked, and they made a bad choice, and they killed a bunch of people. You have members that make mistakes, and they talk on behalf of the church, but they do not represent the core beliefs of the church. So I don't believe that the gospel has made a mistake. I believe that members in the church have made mistakes. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've made mistakes. I've pissed people off. I've caused people to leave the church because I said the wrong thing. That doesn't make the church wrong. It makes me wrong. I made the mistake. And people need to look at that and understand that people are imperfect. It's You have to look past that. There is no perfect church on this earth. The churches on this earth are not perfect, but the message is. And so it's how the message is delivered and who delivers it is what people put their faith in all too often. Put your faith in God, not in the man teaching you. Put your faith in God. Let him answer your questions. Let him guide you. Let him drive you. Let the men teach you. But go to God with your questions and concerns. The LDS faith teaches that. When a prophet speaks, if you have a concern, pray about it. Come to your own understanding. The church has never told you you have to be a member of the church. You choose to be a member of the church. You choose to follow it. That's your choice. And if you don't want to, that's okay. That's your choice. And so I, I look at it that way, that the, the gospel's not wrong. The people are. Can you tell me what the massacre is you mentioned? Yeah, I, I didn't know if anybody was going to bring that up. Mountain Meadow Massacres back in the late 1800s, the LDS Church had moved to Utah Territory, and there was a militia being sent out to kill all the Mormons. Uh, Governor Lilburn Boggs in Missouri actually took out an extermination order saying you could kill a Mormon and not be prosecuted for doing it. And the church was fleeing from Missouri to Nauvoo to Utah to get away from the persecution. Oddly enough, Fun fact, the Mormon extermination order was law until the 70s, until the mid-70s. It's crazy when you think about that. I mean, the Mormon faith was trying to be exterminated. Joseph Smith was tarred and feathered many times, poisoned. You had, I mean, he was murdered in Carthage. Because of that, the members of the church were always fearful because they're like, hey, we're going to Utah because our prophet says we need to go there, but it also gets us so far away from civilization that hopefully everybody just leaves us alone and lets us do our own thing. There was word out that there was a militia coming to Utah to wipe out the Mormons. As they were approaching, there was a group of Indians and members that were overly panicked. They had sent word to Brigham Young saying, hey, look, these people are coming. What should we do? And before Brigham Young answered them, they slaughtered an entire trainload of people, men, women, and children. They were killed by Indians and by Mormons. And it's a, it's a dark part, but it's a fact that happened. If you Google Mountain Meadow Massacre, you'll find many books and articles about that. There was even a movie made about it. I don't believe that the church said kill the people. I believe the members of the church panicked and killed the people. It's a it's an ugly history, but it, it leads right into the question. Yes, people in the church have made mistakes, big ones. The same person asked, how do you know they're not making mistakes now? I think you have sort of alluded to this answer, but I'll let you answer that one directly so that I'm not filling in something that you could say yourself. No worries. You know, I pray about it. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. And I live by that. I've had people tell me things that I didn't believe. Leaders in my church. I struggle with the whole Boy Scouts of America issue right now. You can ask my wife. I, it bothers me. I am an Eagle Scout. 
I love the Boy Scouts. I've been a member for 18 years. I've been a scout master. I struggle with it. I struggle with the core belief of the scouting program. I don't, I don't have a problem with gays being allowed into the Boy Scouts. I have a problem with the Boy Scouts reversing a century-old tradition for the purpose of making money. And that's how I see it. People disagree, but that's how I see it. Again, I, I have no mean, ill-will feelings towards any person in this world in respect to their preferences of life. But I feel that when a group of people have to give up core belief in order to make money or in order to bow to politics, and I don't want to be a part of it. I have a problem with that. Having said that, I have been told things by people that I don't believe, and I take them to task. I've had people quote stuff in church, and I'll say, where'd you get that? Oh, I read it in a book. What book? Well, I'm like, you can't teach it. You can't tell people this is what the church teaches if you can't show me where it's in a church-printed document. I mean, we have three magazines, well, several in multiple languages, but the Ensign, the New Era, and the Friend are church magazines. And anything in those are cleared through the church. So you can take them as what the church would teach, preach, and doctrine of our church. You can take it in those magazines or in the, the scriptures that we use. If it's printed by the LDS church, then it's church statements. Anything outside of that, Deseret Book is not a church thing. And so I stress that often. My current position within my church, I'm what they call a Sunday school president, which means I'm over everybody who teaches in the in the congregation. My job is to make sure that the curriculum is there, that they're teaching correctly, that they're not interjecting too many opinions as doctrinal claims for the church. It's to make sure that, that they're discussing what is consistent with the church would want. And so I tell people, if you don't agree, pray about it or research it. So yes, I've seen people make mistakes and I've called them out and I pray about it. I believe that God answers prayers and I believe that he'll tell me that yes, what you're hearing is true or no, what you're hearing isn't. And and then I'm, and then it's my job to further investigate. If it's not true, why isn't it true? What What's wrong about it? And carry it from there. And then formulate my own decision and formulate my own process of, of uh dealing with it. The Boy Scouts, in my mind, is a perfect example. I'm struggling with that. My sons are in Boy Scouts, and I just struggle with it. And so, but the church supports the Boy Scouts. I don't, but the church does. I think we're finally getting on to some easier questions. Someone had asked, what is your least favorite question from non-Mormons, or least favorite question to be asked? And it may be along the same lines. What is something that we, we being non-Mormons, might say that you find offensive or hurtful that we don't realize would be offensive? I think when the, you know, people choose to be offended in my mind. So I answer it from that standpoint. So people understand my answer. If you're offended, it's because you choose to be. In my line of business, I get yelled at, sworn at, cussed out, threatened, trying to offend me, and and I don't get offended because I choose not to. What bothers me or will offend Mormons is when you mock their temple ceremonies and you mock their garments and you mock sacred things like marriage and you mock things of that nature. Mormons will find that to be a problem because these are sacred things that we take seriously. We don't, they're not a game. They're not a joke. It's very personal, very private. It's between me and God. So when you talk to a Mormon, call them a Mormon, call them LDS, call them whatever you want. They should be offended by that. Mocking leaders of the church. You know what? People get offended when you mock Trump or don't mock Trump. People get offended. I mean, it's it's their choice. We hold those things sacred, and they're important to us because it's a part of our culture. Um, Joseph Smith is an important figure within our within our church. He was a guy that, that founded our church under the direction of God. So for us, I think be respectful of the Mormon beliefs, 
as odd as they may seem to you, respect them. Don't mock them. And, and when you do mock them, expect an unhappy response or an uncomfortable cricket moment because uh, you're the click, click sound in the background from the crickets because nobody thought it was funny. I tell people that. That's, that's my thought. As for me, that's what offends me. Is when, it not offends me, it bothers me is when people mock what I find to be sacred and, and personal. It's my temple experience, my garments, my relationship with my wife is as sacred to me as what happens in somebody's bedroom. You don't share. You don't kiss and tell because you want to respect the people that you're around. And it's a private moment. And, and I look at the, the church that way. So for me, it's the temple and it's my internal beliefs. And you mock Joseph Smith. I hear all kinds of jokes and all kinds of things about that. It bothers me because he's important to me just as, you know, your mom or your father may be important to you or your dog may be important to you. You don't want them to be mocked. But ultimately, like I said, temple ceremonies, I think, are the biggest thing that Mormons have a problem with when you're going to upset them. You want to upset a Mormon fast, make fun of the temple. Make fun of what they do in the temple. They don't like that. <laughs> what for you in the faith is most challenging? Not watching Raider or movies. Um, that and swearing. Oh, geez, you know, that's a great question. I think the simple things are those. I swear too much. I, I love war movies, and most of them are rated R, and the church asks us to abstain from any media that is not conducive to our beliefs. And murder and violence and swearing and nudity is all against our beliefs. So I stay away from the nudity side of it, but I love radar movies, Saving Private Ryan, movies like that I love. The other challenge I have, I think, within within the faith are the, are the like I said, the, the current BSA situation. And I have a problem with the church teaches us that we need to keep all the laws of the land. And the church will baptize and introduce people into the church that are not legally in this country. And that is a conflict in my mind. I don't understand why they do it, but they do. But I know when I was baptized, the church said, you know, do you keep the laws? Oh, yeah. Okay, great. If you're not here legally, you're not keeping the laws by the sheer fact that you're not here legally. Yes, you might pay your taxes and follow it, but you're not. And the the church baptizes people anyways and brings them in with the belief that if you baptize them, then they will strive to be better and follow the laws and do the right thing. I struggle with that one. I also struggle with, I know you asked for one thing, but I can't think of just one major struggle I have. There's lots of things I struggle with, little things, but I'd say the biggest one I've said is a BSA. That'd be my biggest one is the Boy Scouts of America situation right now. What's the church going to do and why are they doing what they're doing? And I don't understand it. And so that for me would be the biggest one. And then, cause I love the Boy Scouts so much and I love the church and they seem to be at odds with their core beliefs. What do you like most about your faith? And I won't limit you to one. So if you have more than one, feel free to share more than one. <laughs> I love the eternal belief I have. I love the comfort that it brings to me. I've been to lots of churches. I've done my research in that respect. I, my favorite class in college was religion. I loved religion. I did my paper. My final was on Mormons and Seventh-day Adventists, similarities and differences. And I loved it. I went to their church, took my kids, had a great time. Really enjoyed that experience. But every church I've been to, they're lacking an eternal perspective in my mind. It's from my point of view is a doom and gloom. The LDS faith teaches me hope and joy, and I have great comfort in that. I have great comfort in knowing that I've got an eternal wife, I've got an eternal kids, I've got so much to look forward to. And for me, it makes sense. It makes sense that God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost are three separate beings where in other churches, they can't really quite explain it or they have uh, a unique view of it. The LDS faith in my mind is very simple, very basic, and I love that. So for me, that's it. It's the simplicity of the faith and the basicness of it. And it makes sense to me. just makes sense. And I love it. It's very freeing. I don't have to ponder for hours on end about insignificant items. I, I know what I know and I'm comfortable with it. 
There are just two final questions. I'm going to give you them both to you at the same time because they may have the same answer. One person asked if there was anything that you wanted to add that you weren't asked about. And then the final question that I end every show with is, what are three things that you wish we knew? No, I appreciate it. You know, that that's a good, it's a great question. It really is. In my mind, the top three things I wish people knew. Number one, we're not polygamists. Number two, I can drink Dr. Pepper. It's okay. I can drink caffeinated sodas, Coke, Pepsi, doesn't matter. I can drink it. And number three is that we believe that God the Father and his son Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost serve one purpose, and that's for all of us to return to live with him. That the main purpose of our lives is to return to live with God, to be like God, to have all the blessings and opportunities that he wants us to have as any parent would want for their child. And those are probably the three things. Two of them are lighthearted, but the third one is quite serious in my mind. I just want people to know that Mormons are peculiar. We know that. But we all agree that God loves us. Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. The Holy Ghost is a still small voice, this comforter, the baptism by fire, whatever you want to call it. We all believe that. We're all God's children because of it. And I think people should focus on that more than whether or not you're wearing Jesus jammies or spiritual underwear or polygamy or the Book of Mormon versus the Bible. Those things are, are insignificant in respects to loving your brother and your sister that was given to you because God created us all and we're all equal. At the end of the day, we are all equal. I don't care what color you are, how tall you are, how short you are, where you're from, how long you lived, when you died. We are all equal and we all owe it to the same being that created us to give him the respect he deserves by treating our fellow man in the way that you would treat your sibling. And I think if people would focus on those, that last item, that I think the world would be a better place. Whether you're Mormon, Catholic, Baptist, Jehovah's Witness, Islamic, Muslim, Sunni, ISIS, whatever it is, if you focused on that one item, I think the world would be a much better place. And I think that would be, that'd be it for me. Well, since you've said we are all siblings, my brother, I thank you for sharing. <laughs> well, I thank, I, I thank your, your audience and you for giving me the opportunity to share some of what the LDS Faith has, the, has and, and I appreciate your, your podcast. I look forward to hearing it. Thank you very much. A huge thank you to Keith for taking all the time out of his day to complete that interview that you have listened to over the last two podcasts. For those who enjoy listening, as always, please feel free to share, to rate, and review the podcast. Any feedback you can give is great. And because we are trying to provide a platform for people to share their perspectives, it's always important to have various perspectives and different folks listening. So definitely forward it on to anyone you think may be interested. Coming up, most likely next week. We'll see how scheduling goes. We're going to have an interview with somebody who works with survivors of domestic violence. So if you have any questions for someone who has had that experience, questions about domestic violence, this month is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and so we are hoping to help contribute to the conversation and raise some awareness. As always, you can submit questions through different platforms, through Facebook, through Twitter. You can send them via email. You can post them on the website, whatever works for you. Until next time, remember, people are people are people.
Keep listening, keep learning, keep loving.